I'm Emmy Award-winning TV reporter Mara Esquivel-Campo, joined by Pulitzer Prize winner Wesley Lowry and former senior magazine editor Keith Reed. Today on Run Tell This, guest co-host Roland Martin joins us to discuss the release of police body cam video in the Andrew Brown Jr. shooting. Plus, Philadelphia Inquirer columnist Abraham Gutman on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and whether the media gives Israel a pass on human rights abuses. This feels like a NABJ board meeting. <laughs> um, I hope uh, not. Yeah, I hope uh, it don't. I don't got time except, for drama like except, that today. Except less drama, but uh, yeah. <laughs> less drama and we're going to get more done. Roland, I'm really happy to have you here. You know, you are like Mr. Media. You uh, built uh, this one man media empire. Well, it's, it's not it's not one man. I do have staff, um, but um, uh, the, the, the basis of this is real simple. Uh, I am uninterested and I've never been interested in asking uh, someone permission to go cover black people. Uh, and that is, uh, and I know, and the, I don't want anyone to take this wrong, but in the television business, you know, you typically have these 30 something white producers who are in control, same thing in mainstream newsrooms. Uh, and I'm sorry, I'm not trying to ask anybody white, can I go cover this black event? And I wanted to be in control of my own destiny. Two words that have always been governed by in my life are freedom and flexibility. I always understood that when somebody controls your money, they control you. And so yeah. I launched this digital show, Roller Martin Unfiltered, in September 2018. Um, we are launching a digital network next quarter. Um, we are, I, I just finished producing this six part series for Facebook called We Got Next, an intergenerational conversation. So I'm having conversations with other production companies, other networks, uh, other digital platforms. Uh, we, of course, um, you know, deal with our own advertising. So I'm also having those conversations with major uh, Fortune 500 companies as well. And so it's really, it's really about owning and controlling, about creating opportunities. The nation's first black newspaper is called Freedom's Journal. On March 16th, 1827, this is what they wrote in the Lee editorial on the front page. Quote, we wish to plead our own cause. Too long have others spoken for us. That's a big part of the reason that, um, you know, I wanted to create this space is a space where we can come together as black journalists and kind of have the conversations that we want to have, because too often, like you said, you know, someone else has to green light the things that we um, can talk about on different media platforms. Um, but let's move on to the news, because that's what that's what we're here to talk about. Uh, big sure. news in the uh, Andrew Brown Jr. case. Uh, the district attorney um, has said that sheriff's deputies were justified in that fatal shooting. They will not face any charges and they released the video to the public for the first time. So, Wes, I want to start with you on this, because I remember very, very early on you tweeting out that the video must be really bad because of how fiercely they protected it and were trying to keep it from getting out. So having seen the video now and, and having seen the sequence of events, the way that officials orchestrated this unfolding, we're going to do the state investigation, we're going to announce the charges, the lack of charges, and then we're going to release the video to the public. What do you make of what you've seen? The video itself is pretty bad. It's pretty frustrating, um, but it is not, um, like I said, it's been so interesting as you were alluding to, Mara, this sense of how these different jurisdictions are trying to game things out. Right. And, and we've seen this time and time again in city after city. Right. If you go back to Ferguson in 2014, one of the big, quote unquote, lessons learned was how they didn't release any information. We literally didn't know 
anything about what had happened and this whole void got filled by everything else, right? Um, you've seen other cases, be it Walter Scott, where they very quickly released the video once they had it. Cases where there's been these long buildups of when will they release it, when will they not. Cases that start with the bystander video, be it Philando Castile or Alton Sterling, where we start by seeing what happened. And, the, and so what's been interesting now in cases like this have been cases where you know something has happened. The government, the police are the ones with the cameras, body cameras, dash cameras, and they have to make a decision about when they release it, how much they release, and how they kind of stagger these things. Uh, it's interesting because in policing spaces, sometimes they like to pretend like this is all just process, right? This is just what we do because of an act. These, there are deliberate political decisions being made about how they're releasing information trying to avoid unrest, trying to avoid scrutiny, trying to make it look like they didn't cover up. or and so, so it is interesting. One of the things that's interesting is that in North Carolina, they, the, the governor actually, Democratic governor of North Carolina, wanted, wanted, the, wanted the video released, called for the video to be released, and called for the investigation to be turned over to an independent prosecutor. But the local prosecutor refused to do so, right? So you have the state the the governor have who has absolutely no power in an instance of a pr criminal prosecution saying this is what should be done but saying so in the absence of any legislation that would exist that would require or would at least dictate how that video had had to be handled so you're going to end up with the it's inevitable that you're going to end up with these cases where prosecutors are making decisions about whether to charge an officer or whether not to charge an officer, uh, but in the absence of information or in the absence of any rules about what can be done with video evidence in, in that situation. What we learned today is precisely why you need to have states, attorney generals taking over investigations. Uh, there was nothing that Andrew Womble said today that I believed. Uh, he sounded more like the defense attorney as opposed to the district, district, district attorney. <clears throat> Womble has not been forthcoming throughout all of this. Keep in mind, this is somebody who's also running for superior court judge because uh, he is the DA and now running for a judicial position. Uh, that's another reason why he should have recused himself. I hope uh, the, the feds uh, launch an investigation, take it to a grand jury, uh, and actually have a full vetting of the evidence uh, but because uh, here's the piece, if he really thought that, oh, was that cut and dry, they wouldn't have fought this hard not to release it. In a lot of cases, the they have to release the video because there's already been bystander video that's come out. And so they really don't have a choice because the public sees what has happened. And so the body cam footage um, is just an added layer to that. We have to hope the, 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 uh, this, the Biden Department of Justice is going to launch their own investigation into this. It's hopeful they will take this to a federal grand jury, and then we see what happens. This is why Christian Clark needs to be confirmed by the United States Senate to head the Civil Rights Division of the Department of Justice. Uh, this is why people fought for Vanita Gupta to be confirmed by the United States Senate. All right, let's move on to uh, what's happening in the Middle East. Abraham Gutman is with the Philadelphia Inquirer, and uh, he's been writing about the current ongoing conflict um, uh, between the Palestinians and Israelis. So first, welcome. Thank you for being here. You talk about how progressives have kind of failed to speak out on human rights abuses that they're seeing in the Middle East, but you see some parallels as to what we've seen here when it comes to our, our history of race in this country. 
Yeah, thank, thank you for having me. I'm a big fan of everyone in this call, so this is a really big honor. Um, I think, you know, to start, I, I just want to set the stage a little bit about what I mean when I say parallels. Um, I interviewed for, for the latest piece that I wrote, and Mark Lamont Hill, that I know was on Roland's show yesterday, I believe, and he told me something I didn't make into the piece, but he says that acknowledging similarities doesn't demand sameness. So I think that to frame this conversation, it's really important to say, I don't think that being a Palestinian in East Jerusalem, in Gaza, in Jaffa, or in Ramallah is exactly the same as being, you know, a black man watching the unfolding news today from North Carolina, right? And what I am arguing is that there are undercurrent themes and forces at play that then justify different sets of tools and different sets of control. And we see this in the use of security forces, not to serve and protect, but to brutalize and control. We see this in displacement and fighting over land. We see that in laws that try to sound like housing law is a real estate transaction between two people. But if I would call redlining a real estate transaction between two people and just, you know, that would be kind of, I hope no one will find Yeah, I I hope that like we're in a world in which that's laughable, but we hear that about Sheikh Jarrah and a Jewish person coming to claim a house that they claimed they owned 80 years ago on a law that doesn't allow someone else to do the exact same thing with the same deed from the same Ottoman Empire because well, can, you, can you explain can you explain that background because the the yes. predominant media narrative is that Israel is defending itself from Hamas rockets and that the starting point is the Hamas rockets it doesn't provide much context beyond that can you please provide that context yeah i think about this a lot like people that you know say that someone was arrested for resisting arrest we have to start why did they resist arrest in the first place why did the interaction start so we don't need to go back, you know, to the to the origins of the conflict from day one. But basically, in early May, um, uh, there was a new round of effort by settler Jewish right wing activists. And this is a political movement, and that's what's so critical and so often missed in in U.S. media to take over houses in East Jerusalem. East Jerusalem. Houses that people live in. People live in have land deeds on. Think it's their home, right? And it is their home. And these are neighborhoods that are predominantly um, Palestinian. Uh, a whole other conversation about the fact that there are 300,000 people who are non-citizen residents of Israel in East Jerusalem. We can you know, talk about the apartheid war later. But the core issue here is that there's a Jewish, there's an Israeli law that said that Jews who have land lead, land deed before 1948 can come and claim these houses. So every few years, we have this cycle of an effort to take over these homes and, in my opinion, participate in this form of ethnic cleansing through real estate practices of displacing neighborhoods from a belief that Jerusalem needs to be united under Jewish control and Jewish sovereignty, which is a part of the religious Zionist enterprise. And what you saw this time is that if there was a Supreme Court hearing about, I think it was six homes in a neighborhood called Sheikh Jarrah. Um, we saw an escalation in police response to protests. And then it coincided a week and a half ago with the prayers of uh, the holiest night of Ramadan when Israeli security forces both blocked worshipers from getting to Jerusalem and these are citizens of Israel (laughs) that are Muslim and wanted to come and worship. 
and security forces entered the Temple Mountain Al-Aqsa mosque compound complex, which is the third holiest mosque for Islam, including holding photos of shooting rubber bullets inside of the mosque itself. Um, the day after Hamas basically said, either security forces go out of Temple Mountain or we shoot rockets at 6 p.m. And 6 p.m. arrived and we started this latest cycle in Gaza. I want to step back a, a minute and give and give a little bit of context, um, not about the situation, but, ju- but just about your, your appearance here. You are Israeli born, correct? Born and raised. Born and, born and raised in Israel. You are you are Jewish. Correct. You have you have family still in Tel Aviv who during the latest round of rockets being fired actually had to take cover and go into shelter. So so this is this is not just for you something that you're standing back and observing from 10,000 feet. This is this is very personal, right? But your perspective is a lot different from what we tend to to hear in American television and in newspapers when we talk about is the Israel-Palestine conflict. When it comes to Israel and Palestine, because an accusation of anti-Semitism has been so weaponized to mm-hmm. silence people who are speaking up for something that I, I generally believe that if you would take any progressive, tell them about the situation, remove the, where it is, don't tell them it's Palestine. They would agree. They would, yeah, yeah, this is horrible. So why, so why do you think that is? Because I would, I would agree with you wholeheartedly. Um, I've never received more backlash than uh, after an interview I did in MSNBC several years ago, where I asked an Israeli official if he felt that the response at the time was proportional, um, given that you know the the death toll was so wildly unproportional. I received hundreds of death messages on Twitter just for asking that question. This is MSNBC, right? This yeah. is not Fox News. Why do you think that is? So first of all, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry for the experience. I think, look, the, the, um, the Holocaust looms large on American Jews still having people who are alive, on Israeli Jews still people who are alive. And, and it's really important to recognize that even though there's a real kinship and understanding, and you know, if I put myself in the shoes of a 1948 Jew, the idea of a sovereign state where you can be safe after the Holocaust, I get it, I get that mentality. And this is not to justify anything that was done in the name of that idea, but understand that where it comes from. It will be naive to say that that's all it is. This has been weaponized and this has been promoted by organizations like APAC, by Benjamin Netanyahu, who is happy to, you know, sit with his buddy Viktor Orban of Hungary, who is an anti-Semite fascist. But as long as they can both dunk on Soros, it's all good. That suddenly... You know, it's been weaponized to the point that uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene tweeted yesterday, Jewish lives matter to criticize Ilhan Omar. Jewish space lasers cause a drought. Marjorie Taylor Greene <laughs> is suddenly, you know, concerned about anti-Semitism. So it's really important to recognize that Israel is doing this tricky thing, right? On one hand, when Ilhan Omar once mentioned dual loyalty, or as this mentioned, it's problematic. Oh, you can't say that American Jews are both loyal to America and to Israel. On the other hand, every American Jew can pack a bag tomorrow and become a citizen of Israel by Israeli law because it's the land of the Jews. And you say, oh, it's not okay that people are upset about Jews, about what's going on. Well, like I didn't put a Star of David on the plane that are bombing Gaza. I didn't proclaim Israel the nation state of the Jewish people. I didn't put the word Jewish as a sixth word in the anthem 
when millions of your citizens are not Jewish. And I don't know what that means to listen to that anthem, right? So I'm not a citizen of America, but I can become American eventually. If you're a Palestinian citizen of Israel, even if you're the most apolitical person in the world, if you're an American, if you decide to move tomorrow, there's a level of Israeliness that, you know, very, very concretely you will never reach. And, and I think that that has been done deliberately. And Israel is walking a very fine line on pushing the boundary, on not allowing this type of criticism. You also can't overlook the importance of white conservative evangelicals being ardent supporters of Israel for biblical mm -hmm. reasons. But the partnership is based on conflicting religious ideology. It's the it's the well, evangelical no, so, well, belief that Jesus is coming back, and then all who don't believe in Jesus are going to hell. And no, 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 that's that's not, not that's not how it it's works. Based, <laughs> it's, it's based on it's based on that they that they were the chosen people of God. Yeah, yeah, it's it's, that's, it's about that's, that's the basic. It, it's the it's the idea that it, it's the idea that the saint the God of Christianity chose the Jews, Jesus was a Jew, right? And so there's a very special and symbolic relationship but where, where broad Christianity sees itself in some ways as an extension of, that, they, that the evangelical Christian sees them as today, sees themselves as today's Jew, today's chosen person. And so there's a reverence and an, un, I mean, and, and on top of that, there is a, um, there is a, uh, a sharing of sacred sites and of history. If you're if you're a hyper religious Christian, well, where are you going to go to honor your? You're going to go to Nazareth. You can go to Jerusalem. You're going to go that. And so there's a very you know you know I I I actually think to echo what Roland was saying. I, I think it's a much simpler connection and much less about the hyper specifics of what the it, it's purely that if your entire your entire religion is based on the belief that the Jews were the chosen people until Jesus came and died on the cross to resolve the the Jews are still the chosen I mean, the, the Judaism is extremely important in the context of Christianity. Um, and so because of that, I think there's a very particular and by the way, What's, what's also true is given kind of the Christian nationalism of the country broadly, is certainly in the era we live in, in a post 9-11 era, right, that the, the politics there have also been extremely skeptical, is a kind term, at times openly hostile to, um, to Islam and to Muslims. Um, and so what I think is equally notable is the reality, and we see language about this all the time, talking about Israel being the only democracy in the Middle East, talking about the, the, the tensions between um, Islamic countries and the state of Israel, right? That, again, Christians, uh, American Christians very much see themselves in or project themselves onto the plight of the Israeli Jews. And again, I think it's much less of this like Tetris game or like bank shot of like what they think is going to happen at the, but, it, but rather is much more about this fundamental belief that if you are a Christian, you believe the Jews are historically and God chosen important set of people and you're inclined to be their ally one way or the other. Yes, precisely. And so I, now I, you take that white conservative evangelical mm -hmm. who was a hardcore Republican and then now that's why that's why you see see this sort of that's that's why it was such a huge deal. Oh, where to move the capital? You know, uh, where, where are you going to place the cap? Where where is the American embassy going to be? Uh, and and so then you you had these white conservative evangelicals. It 
absolutely it must be in Jerusalem. I mean, so, you, I mean you had all this back and forth going on. And so you you now have a, a significant, so now you have a potent weapon. So what you have is you have hardcore conservatives, white, white conservative evangelicals, Israel, 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 but then you have American Jews who vote Democratic, who support Israel, but who also are not, who are also willing to criticize certain actions. And see, what this really boils down to is this belief, how dare you criticize anything Israel is done. What I think is really coming come to the forefront right now that we haven't discussed is at the, if you if you strip all that out, and I know it's impossible to do, but if you strip all that out, this is a humanitarian crisis. This is this is about dispossession and displacement and 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 abuse of power and disproportionality of response. It's about the death of of civilians and mass. It's about the bombing of of children who are being who are being viewed as little more than than collateral damage. When you have these long periods of peace, because we haven't seen one of one of these periods of violence in, in at least in about a decade. Right. When you have these long periods of peace, what happens is, is that they're able to on Palestinian side, start to build a little bit of infrastructure, start to build, get, get an economy restarted, start to move things. And it take in, in order for, for political and economic stability to take hold, it takes decades, right? So what, what's happening on the Palestinian side, one of the things that's happening as part of this human, humanitarian crisis is that when the bombs fall, they don't just kill people and destroy buildings today. It restarts that clock all over again. So everything that had been built in the, in the past decade, everything that been, that been built in the past five, six, six years in, term, in terms of creating the conditions that would allow for economic stability, political stability, and hope for peace, then, get, then gets destroyed. I want to tighten a few things you said. Okay. Gaza never had peace. Fair. So then 2006, there's a blockade of air, land, and sea, right? So what is really important, and, and I'm thinking a lot of this through the lens of kind of like defund the police, right? So the, I'm still workshopping this argument. So I'm like, that, bear with that's me right. if it, if it <laughs> We're so sense. honored. That's, that's, that's <laughs> right. but, but basically, you know, you had this, when, when, you know, in the last like five, six years, and, and you all talked about body cameras before, right? And kind of can that change? I think what happened, what changed, in my opinion, in public discourse in the United States on policing when George Floyd was murdered is that a lot of people suddenly said, whoa, I don't just want to stop the next murder. I want to stop more than that. I want to stop the next pretextual stop. I want to stop the next, you know, stop and frisk for nothing down the street. I, I, I want to defund the police. It was suddenly not, let's find the most egregious example, which happened in America far, 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 far too often, and stop that, which body counts maybe will do. It was, we lost trust in the system as a whole, and now we want to strip it away from power to varying degrees, obviously, from abolition to um, smaller police departments. Mm. That didn't happen yet, and that needs to happen with the occupation of Palestine. Because you do have, for the first time, people who didn't join in the past saying, stop bombing Gaza. What is happening now is not justified. Gaza is one of the densest places in the world. There is no surgical attack on Gaza 
there is no precision attack on Gaza. You, uh, Barry Weiss, wrote in uh, uh, a column that a Palestinian death of Palestinian children is a tragedy, but it's quote an unavoidable burden of political power. And I think that most young people, I hope in the world, don't view death of ch ch children that way for any political power. But then the question is what happened the day after, right? Because you rebuild in blockade, you rebuild under occupation, you rebuild that if you're 16 in Gaza, you've never known anything outside of a 25 mile trip in your life. Right. So how do we push from not, it, it, it's, it's sad that it takes moral courage to say you shouldn't bomb a building that is residential <laughs> or bomb a newsroom of AP or, or, you know, but how do we take it further, right? That Palestinians, are not just organisms that either live or die, and once they're alive, they're fine, but that Palestinian human being who don't want to be harassed, who want to have all the freedoms that we have, who have complex emotional lives and PTSD, and have trauma and have loss. And that is the part of the conversation that I don't see us getting. And to be completely fair, it probably took 400 years in America to get to discussing Black folks. So Maybe, I hope we don't win another well, 400 I, years. The, well, the point that you just made, I think, is an important one that you that you do have to make the parallels. The problem is when people don't want to be honest about the parallels. When Jimmy Carter wrote his book and he called it apartheid, he got ripped. People, how dare you call what was happening in Israel apartheid? But what you just described is exactly what black people had to endure. First of all, there were black communities that were bombed. I'm going to be in Tulsa for the 100th anniversary of the Tulsa race riots. Uh, the, what happened in Wilmington, what happened in numerous places, what happened in Rosewood, those things did happen. The anniversary of MOVE last week. Yeah, those, all these things happened. What you're, but, but the, the key is, the key is that this is where media comes in. This is where all those things come in. It, 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 when people have a consciousness where they begin to say, okay, you know what? Enough is enough. Selma only changed. You read Nicholas Cott's book. Selma changed because the cameras showed what happened on Bloody Sunday. Bur uh, white folks in America only changed when they saw dogs being sicked on people in Birmingham. That's why the media narrative is so important. Dr. King always understood. He said the, the role of media. What you're seeing here, what you're seeing take place now, how media is now covering it. Me mainstream American media is no longer operating as a stenographer for Israel. That's, but, and so, so the public begins to shift when media has a different view and perspective of what's happening. So Mara said at the beginning of this conversation, this feels like an ABJ board meeting. And we kind of laughed about that. But it was about... I said, what was it, eight, eight or 10 years ago, the four of us, Mara, Roland, I Wes, was never I, on the board at the same time you, as Roland, actually. You were not on the, no, you I came. Missed, you, I missed the Roland Martin era. So, so it was three of us. So it was, so it was, it was, you, You're you came on after. So it was, so it was <laughs> Roland, Wes, and I were on, were on the board. And there was a, there was a, a controversial thing that we did in the National Association of Black Journalists, where we, where we want, where we put forward, uh, I wrote this this resolution. People, a lot of people criticized Roland. They say it was Roland was doing this because Roland wanted to get his own show. It wasn't Roland? I I wrote the resolution, and the resolution passed where we gave what we called a thumbs down award. It was sort of a worst practices award to the heads of cable news networks because yep. in prime because in prime time 
there were, and this is in the 2000s. This is in 1990. It wasn't 1980. No, 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 no. 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 It, was, it, was, it, was, it was in 2011. It was 2011. Yeah, this was, this, this, this was almost the second Obama term. This, this wasn't and even like, were, oh, wait. And no, it was 2011. No, there were no non-white hosts of a primetime cable news show in the country, not on any network, not on MSNBC, not on Fox News, not on, like, no, none. None of them. None of them had a, had a, had a single one, and the idea that that was, that that was controversial in 2011, and people wanted to blame Roland for something that he didn't even write and say that he nope. was making it personal because he wanted to show he didn't even write the thing, right? Nope. But bring that conversation forward and look at the conversation that we're having now about. Well, hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. You can't you can't leave this out, Mara. You joined the board after that. And the company that Mara worked for threatened to prevent her from serving on the board because of that very resolution. You know, it's funny. I don't remember that. Oh, I maybe do. I, maybe I block. I block. <laughs> There's a lot you have to block out to live to live a joyful life as a black person in media. They I don't remember they that. Literally, they literally because you joined you joined the board in 2011, right? I remember it was 2012. It was after my my daughter was three months old. Right. What I'm saying is, but 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 to, but to understand the power there, they threaten. They, I mean, I, I remember it vividly, and we were like, I'm sorry, you're not going to tell us what the hell to do with our organization to understand how media wants to influence these decisions. One thing I want to ask about, um, so first I was going to say that it was really interesting for me, speaking about, uh, Keith and Roland have both noted that there has always been some, there has always been a set of solidarity between Black activism and Palestinian activism writ large. I mean, there, there's a quote from, I want to say it was from Stokely Carmichael, where he says his two dreams were to have dinner in, in Johannesburg with his wife and, and coffee in Gaza or coffee in Palestine uh, uh, with his wife, that, that, that there's always been a level of solidarity there. But one thing that's been interesting for me, having covered this current set of young black activists very closely, um, has been watching how a lot of them have have become politically educated around these issues. That look, for a lot of people, and and, and, I don't, and this is not just black people, but I think black people among them, right? Israel-Palestine has always been kind of a fourth rail issue that no matter what you say, someone on the internet's gonna yell at you about, and so maybe I'm not gonna touch it. If, if the person who asked the Israel-Palestine question at your public speech, you try to like avoid dealing with it because no matter what you say, they're gonna be mad. Um, it's complicated, it's international, it's felt difficult. There's a history, you're trying to figure out which, and what I think has been interesting has been to watch a set of people my age come into their political ideologies, uh, come into their public voices, and start to learn and research and figure out more of what has happened in this space, understanding the history in ways that are different. And, and what I also note is that in, here in, in the States, the role that Palestinian American activists have played in Black Lives Matter has been something that has furthered those, those allyships. That Cori Bush, the congresswoman from St. Louis, when she gave her floor speech among a series of floor speeches from primarily women of color, but young Congress member people of color who are more progressive, who were speaking out um, against uh, the military action from Israel. When she gave her floor speech, she honored and talked about uh, an activist named Baza Masri in St. Louis, in Ferguson. 
Now, Bosom was this Palestinian-American who was on the front lines of Ferguson, was out there every night. He became a Fox News villain because he would he would live stream and had he had a lot of perhaps not polite things to say to the various police officers. Uh, Bosom was someone I got to know very well personally because I spent a lot of time on the ground there in Ferguson. He was out there every night. I was out there every night. Um, and he had um, his own struggles, his own background. He openly talked about his, his issues with addiction, and ultimately he died of an overdose Um a year or two ago, but it was remarkable to me to think about the idea that Cory Bush, who I met in the streets of Ferguson, was speaking on the floor of Congress in defense of Palestinians to condemn the behavior of the Israeli government. She was invoking Basim Masri, a Ferguson activist, and those relationships and how in so many ways the politics of, our, of this moment, especially on the left, especially among the younger black sect, are not things you can cleave apart, right? That it's very hard for you to be someone who's talking about the black diaspora and Black Lives Matter and like, without then encountering Israel and Palestine and seeing it as a human rights issue. And I, and I, and I do think that there's been some movement and some momentum as it relates to that. Um, it's because they did they did something that the Israelis did. Remember, APAC sponsored a number of trips. <laughs> they would bring journalists and others to Israel. Go go to the pages of Martin Lamont Hill and Philip Agnew and other black activists. They have made trips to that part of the country. You know what's so, so what funny? You now Rolling, you mentioned that I was on one of those trips. I did one of those trips in 2004. There was a gentleman, his last name was Murphy. I can't remember his first name. He was a wonderful gentleman. And he made it his mission to invite Black journalists to the Arab world. And the trip was paid for. And I went on a trip to Jordan. It was my first time to the Middle East. There you go. And, and the Middle East became the place I did the most work from as a freelancer um, over the next few years. It was my entry point. It was my introduction. And it there was a very warm and fuzzy introduction. It was, let's go have tea with the Bedouins in the desert. Let's go to this hookah bar. It was yes. just a cultural immersion to say, this place is not scary. A lot of what you've heard is not true. Come back and do honest reporting and it changed and that's what my a career. and that and that's what apac did for years and so what what activists did was they saw what apac did and they said we're gonna start creating these trips and so i've been amazed in the last two weeks the number of black activists who've been posting photos of their trips mm -hmm. to that region of the country and now when they come back they are now sharing with their with their with their circles. They're now telling the stories, and so now you don't have just folks talking about what they saw on a cable news outlet. They now are saying, "No, I was there talking with people there and those experiences." And I think that also, whoever, if you win the media narrative, look, you, you can't have you can't do this without unless you have a, 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 a media narrative. Suddenly, seeing the images of Gaza. Well, what is shared from Israel is Star Wars, cool videos of interceptions, you know. It, it recreates this kind of bloody Sunday effect with a lot of people saying, you know, I've been to Israel, Jewish, went to birthright, whatever, like, but they didn't, they weren't afraid. They don't see, like, and, and, and I think that's important because I think it allows us to imagine coexistence. And I think that's Abraham, key. 
Hey, bro, I have a question for you, and, and I do, and I do want to, I do want to get to. You mentioned it earlier the move bombing, and I, I, do, I do want to ask you a question about that because that's. I mean, this has been such a week as every week is, and there's all we could talk about is Palestine for nineteen for a whole podcast forever, right? But but I do have one question I want to ask you. It's not it's not a devil's advocate question, but it's it, but it's more coming from a space of right. When I talk to some of my Jewish American friends, um, they're even. Uh, and perhaps even especially the more liberal, the more progressive, those who are skeptical of the government and who are frustrated, there still can be a point in the dialogue where they look at the way that uh, – when they look at the way this is being discussed publicly, where there are times where they feel like some of the rhetoric veers into anti-Semitism. Are there areas in which people should be sensitive and smart about how they talk so that we're not advancing stereotypes or tropes or rhetoric about – Jews or Israelis that do have problematic issues, uh, problematic issues and histories, because I don't think any of, I don't, I know I can speak for my friends. None of us want that. Certainly. I agree with the premise completely. So right there with you. And, we're good. All right. So we're good. It's, it's so, over. Yeah. We agree. Thank you for having me. <laughs> and can't wait to read the book. But um, the, you know, I think about this a lot, like in conversations in newsrooms, again, since we're all journalists, I, I'm not gonna, you know, lean on that for a second, about language and kind of like officers involved shooting, right? And the, the solution is always really easy. You just say what happened, mm -hmm. right? And I think my biggest advice to people is avoid the terminological debate, right? If you're not feeling comfortable talking about apartheid, because we maybe don't know enough, I feel comfortable talking about Israeli apartheid. I also know my positionality that it's easier for me to talk about this as an Israeli Jew, but that's a different conversation. But to me, you don't need, you can describe what you're seeing and it's upsetting you. You don't need to be a renowned scholar of international law and argue with me now whether or not the Rome Convention definition of, no, just say what you're seeing. And I think, so don't tell me that Jews control media. Talk to me about coverage, right? Don't tell me that, you know, and again, I, I, I have no problem with Ilhan Omar. It's all about the Benjamins tweet way back when. Um, I, and I defended her because I think it's, it's a lot of times when people are accused of anti-Semitism, it's, it's the worst. You're searching for it and then you find it. But, but so maybe don't talk about money in politics. Talk about like which money. Talk to me about like you talked before about DAs and, 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 and the FOP and, and the police that they want those endorsements. So say it. Don't say, you know, don't sound like there's a deep state government. Just tell me what you're thinking. Tell me what you're seeing and tell me what's upsetting you. And I think that then you're really in solid ground because there's a lot to be upset about. My tiny caveat to that, and this is something that I evolved a lot on, is, but that doesn't mean to talk about people and not systems. I want all kids to be okay. Of course you do. Like most people are not, you know, <laughs> most people are, you know, don't want people to die. Like, yeah, of course, if, if all else equal, but again, it's a question about, okay, so what, I, I want coexistence, hashtag peace in the Middle East, great. What systems are you willing to identify and dismantle? Describe them to me, don't find the legal definition to them, but what system are we willing to talk about, right? So if you're not willing to talk to me about the occupation, maybe there's a problem. So I think it's both describing what you see, and, and, but still not only saying, oh, isn't it sad that kid had a bad day, right? Like, quote unquote, like, it's about much more than that, it's about power. Abraham, thank you so much for being here. I don't, I don't know if you self-define as white. Do you consider yourself white? Yes. 
Okay, so you're our first white guest, so welcome. Oh, wow. I'm, uh, <laughs> Thank, I'm, you. Thank you for joining us. <laughs> I, I'm out I'm here breaking who... color barriers and religious barriers, and like um, we, we've solved it, it all. On is, that, is that true? That is true. Yeah, yeah. who else? That's, that's wild. Uh, we've only had one like, non black I mean, guest, which was Ann Curry, but she's Asian sure. American. And sure. so Abraham has now broken the color barrier for white wow. men. So we're very yeah. happy. We're thrilled how, that you're how long here. y'all been doing this? Well, I, the point is to create a space for black people to have conversations about the things gotta, that are important I, to us. So first of all, first of all, you talk about who created a black show. I don't so so you sound surprised <laughs> that we haven't had more I mean, white folks I've had about five black shows and I had more white folks than that. What you gotta understand, Roland, is that each, on each and every show. We got two light-skinned people. They add up to one white person. No, that don't work. That don't work. That don't work. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. They, I don't know. I don't know how they didn't hear that coming. I do. I I, I pull it out every two or three shows. I pull that one out. There's, there's a light-skinned joke about every episode. Yes. Every season. Now you can really lean on my also like on my like all my white fragility, and now I feel like I'm supposed to both say thank you for me being here. And, and so, and I'm so sorry that I took this space. <laughs> this is the I'm not sure what I'm supposed to do. I'll put this a note is the part where we I'll start telling black jokes on Twitter just in case. <laughs> thank you for Lord being here. Mercy. Roland, thank you for being here. I appreciate it. Thanks a bunch. Glad glad to hang out and kick it. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, keep doing it. Uh, and I'm a, I'm a firm believer of owning your own shit. Own your own shit. That's the, that's the title of this episode. Hey, don't forget to subscribe and please leave us a five-star review. And the conversation continues on social media. Please follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RuntellThis underscore. Check out new episodes every Wednesday. Run Tell This is an independent production of Mara Scampo, Inc.